welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute Impri New Delhi Namaste and good evening. I Mahima Kapoor, researcher at Impri Impact and Policy Research Institute, Prabhav Evam Niti Anusandhan Sansthan, New Delhi, extend a warm welcome to you all to the Impri #webpolicytalk. Today we have gathered for a special talk on BS urbanism by Dr. Leon Morenas as part of the special talk series #localgovernance. This discussion is being organized by the Center for Habitat, Urban and Regional Studies at Impri. It is my privilege to introduce the moderator for the session, Mr. Tigendra Singh Pawar. He is the former deputy mayor of Shimla and a senior visiting fellow at Impri. Welcome sir. I am honored to introduce our eminent speaker for today, Dr. Leon A Morenas. Dr Morenas is an associate professor at the School of Planning and Architecture Delhi. He is an architect with a masters in urban design from SPA Delhi and a PhD in architectural sciences with a specialization in informatics from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, Troy, New York. Dr Morenas research uses the disciplinary lens of science and technology studies to understand the relationship of technology with contemporary design architecture and urban planning he concluded a two year fellowship at the indian institute of advanced study shimla where he worked on a project entitled mohallas and smart cities post colonial development in delhi he was a world social sciences fellow in sustainable urbanization and program coordinator of the masters in social design at ambedkar university delhi we welcome you sir now i invite mr tekender to take the proceedings further and we look forward to learning from our esteemed gathering thank you thank you mahima for doing those honors and uh, welcome leon i mean it's really uh, at least we were able to catch you i mean it was so difficult to catch you here and uh, i mean if you could just focus a little more because it seems that you are at a very long distance so if you could just come either closer to the camera because we would like to see yeah breath thanks thanks yeah okay so yeah that, thank that, you mayima and as uh, you pointed out leon and i we actually met in simla I mean, when he was a research fellow there at the indian institute of advanced studies and uh, that's how our association developed further and uh, Uh, of course, Leon teaches in the School of Planning and Architecture, uh, one of the finest uh, teachers that probably the institute has. Uh, well, I uh, I think if I have to introduce, I mean, this is it's, it's very difficult for me to introduce this topic because, uh, and that's why we said BS hash uh, asterisk. Actually, it's bullshit urbanism that that uh, Leon wants to uh, talk about. So why bullshit urbanism? You know, and uh, I mean, of course, he has his own ideas. That's what we gathered in an informal chat. Where is where he actually was bringing out uh, the the humongous amount of inequity that exists in the urban centers, and uh, 
I mean, of course, we have that Oxfam, famous Oxfam report that brings in uh, a very stark difference between rural and urban India. Uh, rural India, the, 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 the asset holding of the 10% top and the bottom, the gap is 500 times, but it is 15,000 times in urban India, and it probably has got further widened. And then since 1960s, in fact, we are entering the 2041 Delhi Master Plan. But if we just have to be very specific about Delhi, uh, I think, I mean, I mean, if we, if we go back to the Master Plan, which where it's, it's, it's talked about, uh, you know, social housing and all, and we've seen, I mean, where we've entered. Actually, the city has its own uh, way of uh, actually developing. But at the same time, I mean, I mean, so so what do we mean? Are we entire planning, or uh, I mean, or, or or do we just keep it for free market economy? But I think Leon has a very interesting argument to that. And Professor Leon, over to you. I mean, what does bullshit capitalism mean, and why? I and mean, why not? Because probably some of the sociologists would say, hey, it's a it's it's a it's a phase of evolutionary process. You know, the, the so-called industrial revolution, uh, migrating people from the vestiges of feudalism and then to Urban, urban, urban world. Why is it not happening? So please have ask your Thank you, Tikinderji. Am I audible? Is this making a difference by being a bit closer? A little louder, probably, so that will be better. All right. So let me uh, just start with my uh, by sharing my. Uh, I I have a few slides, so I'd like to kind of uh, share. Uh, is this is it sharing right now or not really right not really sir you have to do that again okay. yeah one minute I, I, yeah. share screen yeah 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 okay and full screen and then hit full screen right for the yes All right. Uh, play button yeah yeah uh, it's um, on all right so good evening and uh, the Impact and uh, Policy Research Institute has been kind enough to have me as a speaker. So thank you for that. And thank you Tikinderji for the wonderful introduction. And um, yeah, and thank you all uh, for sort of taking your evening and spending some time listening to me. Um, I'm usually much uh, more articulate when I have prepared sort of uh, notes. So uh, you'll see me reading uh, parts of my lecture out and I have an accompanying uh, uh, sort of slide presentation to, give, to sort of give you some visuals of what I mean. And uh, so, yeah, I'd like to talk about bullshit urbanism today. This is a term I've coined in tribute to and based on the work of American anthropologist and activist, David Graeber. In 2013, Graeber coined the term bullshit jobs to refer to, quote, a form of employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, even though the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case, end quote. This definition in his view, and I agree, is fundamental and intuitive. Five years on, from this, he wrote a whole book called Bullshit Jobs, um, in which he explored the origins of the phenomenon, its contemporary relevance, and its lasting psychological, social, and political ramifications on humankind. In the book, Graeber identifies five typologies of bullshit jobs. Flunkies, 
who serve to make their superiors feel important, goons who harm or deceive others on behalf of their bosses, duct tapers, those who temporarily fix problems that could otherwise be fixed permanently, box stickers who create the appearance that something useful is being done when it is not, and taskmasters who manage or create extra work for those who don't need it. Bullshit jobs tend to be white collar, well-paid, and yet deeply unfulfilling. Nevertheless, they are harmful, degrading, and oppressive. The book is a fascinating read, and I highly recommend it. Graeber died unexpectedly last September. This talk is a tribute to his work and message. My takeaway from Graeber is that it is not just jobs that can be pointless, unnecessary, pernicious, and unjustifiable. Urbanism can be this way too. Bullshit urbanism. Almost two decades ago, the American writer, Howard, uh, James Howard Kunzler, wrote The Geography of Nowhere. Writing about American urbanism, he observed, during this epoch of stupendous wealth, and power, we have managed to ruin our greatest cities, throw away our small towns and impose over the countryside a joyless junk habitat, which we can no longer afford to support. Indulging in a fetish of commercialized individualism, we did away with the private, uh, the public realm and with nothing left but private life and our private homes and private cars, we wonder what happened to the spirit of community. We created a landscape of scary places and became a nation of scary people. And I guess this is what he was talking about. It also troubled me to realize that all over America, places like this are being duplicated by the tens of thousands, and this was to be the world of my future. Kunzler dubbed this privatized junk habitat the geography of nowhere. I believe he was beginning to diagnose the emergence of bullshit urbanism. The, phenomenon, the phenomena and built forms associated with the geography of nowhere are global and seen as inevitable and unstoppable juggernaut. And more recently, they have been recast as planetary urbanism. The idea of planetary urbanism still sees the vitiation of the public as an uncontrollable force that destroys conventional categories distinguishing the urban from the rural. Its quote unquote fluidity means that the massive hydraulics of the system, of this urban system, are untamable and bullshit jobs are the life jackets keeping us afloat. Four conditions characterize planetary urbanization according to the theorists Neil Brenner and Christian Schmidt. They are the blurring and rearticulation of urban territories, the disintegration of the hinterland, the end of wilderness and the creation of new scales of urbanization. These conditions, instead of being viewed with concern and despair, are now seen as an opportunity for, quote, new theoretical, conceptual, and methodological innovations, end quote. The central concern of my talk is not limited to the material characteristics of the urban, but more importantly, the mutual construction of human beings and the built environment a process referred to in the Marxist tradition as social production. Our cities, including our offices, golf courses, malls, multiplexes, hospitals, apartment blocks, hotels, and so on, are constructed on the backs of the quote-unquote informal sector, the caddies, delivery boys, factory hands, loaders, cooks, 
and painters are all part of the same population that run our cities. Yet, when our cities locked down during the pandemic, their only option was to head back to their villages, many on foot walking hundreds of kilometers. It was easy to be traumatized by visuals of this working population existing, exiting our cities and groves. However, this almost invisible yet indispensable population is meted out with mindless extraction of their labor, everyday condescension, and sometimes inhuman coercion. Today, bullshit urbanism is therefore both the means to and the ends of such depravity. Both Kunzler and Graeber correctly diagnose contemporary capitalism as the cause of our bullshit predicament. For Graeber, at least theoretically, this was not supposed to happen under capitalism. The usual complaint against capitalism is that it is too efficient, and yet there was a proliferation of bullshit jobs. Since economics cannot justify the increase in bullshit jobs, Graeber suggested that we should study the moral and political ramifications of the phenomenon. He said, and I quote, the ruling class has figured out that a happy and productive population with free time on their hands is a mortal danger. On the other hand, the feeling that work is a moral value in itself and that anyone not willing to submit themselves to some kind of intense work discipline for most of their waking hours deserves nothing is extraordinarily convenient for them. I feel the same argument can be made for bullshit urbanism as well. We know, as the French sociologist Henri Lefebvre proffered, that capitalism perpetuates itself by patterning space. The patterning of space is not driven by economic rationale, but also moral and political reasons. The systematic separation of cities into places of work and homes, otherwise called zoning, is one capitalist strategy. Although part of the city, the logic of manufacturing things is separated from the logic of making people. The urban theorist Jane Jacobs saw this model of development as akin to slavery. In an article entitled Plantation Age, she drew an analogy between slave plantations and modern day factories. For her, the factory was a machine made plantation with blue collar workers being nothing more than slaves. The city worked as a successful plantation by dividing itself into quote unquote monocultural zones that just kept expanding. She wrote, quote, modern suburbs are caricatures of plantations. Look at them. Monocultural housing tracts erected on even larger scales, like so many endless fields of cabbage. Standardized shopping centers multiplying like so many flocks of sheep. Never before, except on plantations, have normal human beings been consigned to planned environments dominated by such poverty of imagination. End quote. I have spent close to two decades trying to understand the poverty of imagination in the hopes of redressing these spatial dystopias. My doctoral work looked at the technological undergirdings of the Delhi Master Plan. The master plan was devised as quote unquote, a prototype for Indian development with the goal of, again, from the master plan, quote, of an integrated and balanced overall program of development, quote, aimed at, end quote, at delivering spatial equality to Delhi citizens. However, this spatial fix has since created a metropolitan dystopia 
of ever-increasing unevenness between the urban poor and the metropolitan rich. At the Indian Institute of, of Advanced Study, Shimla, I expanded my doctoral work to look at the social history of the smart city mission in India. My research examined the claims about data being empirical and non-ideological, and the premise that algorithms analyzing data and smart cities are neutral and objective. I was able to demonstrate that such arrangements and assumptions affect the poor disproportionately and deleteriously. I drew linkages between projects in the United States and the welfare programs in India mandating Aadhaar. In all the hype about big data to target the poor, feminist technology writer Virginia Eubanks contends, quote, the new tools of poverty management hide economic inequality from the professional middle-class public and give the nation the ethical distance it needs to make inhuman choices about who gets food and who starves, who has housing and who remains homeless, whose family stays together and whose is broken up by the state. We manage the poor so that we do not have to eradicate poverty. And I think that's my favorite line of the book. I concluded using the work of data scientist, uh, Cathy O'Neill, that big data was quote, a silent war that hits the poor hardest, but also hammers the middle class. Its victims, for the most part, lack economic power, access to lawyers, or well-funded political organizations to fight their battles. The result is widespread damage that all too often passes for inevitability. End quote. I've spent the last couple of years as a lapsed urbanist. At my final talk at IAS, I felt great despondency about the urban prospect in India. This is how I ended my final talk, and I'm just reproducing a little bit from that talk. Quote, let me conclude with something the American writer Herbert Mouchamp wrote about cities. He said, quote, the city that we hate is also the city that we love. It is the business of a city to offer something for everyone to hate, even to present itself as something completely hateful to some people most of the time, end quote. He arrived at this insight through Melanie Klein's theorization of the depressive possession, where a person feels guilt and grief over hateful attacks over the damaged state of some internal or external object, in this case was the city. Uh, I find myself in this very position as I conclude my two years here, despite the pain sung about the cultural achievements of the city, as Stafford Beer, the cybernetician reminds us, the purpose of a system is what it does. And what the city does is systematically dispossess certain communities. However, I'm also very aware that the very benchmarks that I use to analyze the city and the state and find them wanting are the result of the modern city and state itself. How wrong I was, I think we'll, we'll get to that. Freedom and equality are values unattainable before the advent of modernity. Turning our backs on the modern metropolis is not what I'm advocating. The depressive position that I'm now in comes from a place of deep concern over, I mean, it comes from a place of deep concern over affection for and connection to the city, smart or not, end quote. I came across Graeber's work during this soul searching and realized that maybe the lens through which I was engaging with the urban was erroneous. 
maybe the lens of inequality and uneven development were ill-suited for the prospect of remaking our cities. Graeber even says as much. Sorry, okay. Uh, yeah, Graeber even says as much. And this is uh, a slightly longish quote of his that I use, so uh, sort of uh, bear with me. Inequality is a way of framing social problems appropriate to technocratic reformers, the kind of people who assume from the outset that any real vision of social transformation has long since been taken off the political table. It allows, one, it allows one to tinker with numbers, argue about Gini coefficients and thresholds of dysfunction, readjust tax regimes on social welfare mechanisms, even shock the public with figures showing just how bad things have become. Can you imagine 0.1% of the world's population controls 50% of the wealth, all without addressing any of the factors that people actually object to about such unequal social arrangements? For instance, that some manage to turn their wealth into power over others, or that other people end up being told their needs are not important and their lives have no intrinsic worth. The latter, we are supposed to believe, is just the inevitable effect of inequality, and inequality, the inevitable result of living in any large, complex, urban, technologically sophisticated society. That is the real political message conveyed by endless invocations of an imaginary age of innocence before the invention of inequality, that if we want to get rid of such problems entirely, we'd have to somehow get rid of 99.9% .9 of the Earth's population and go back to being tiny bands of foragers again. Otherwise, I'd like to sort of stress on this, the best we can hope for is to adjust the size of the boot that will be stomping on our faces forever, or perhaps to wrangle a bit more wriggle room in which some of us can at least temporarily duck out of its way." End quote. What happens when we actually hark back to the period before the invention of inequality? Even the most sophisticated urban theories are based on evolutionary models that are over two centuries old. According to this model, Homo sapiens emerged around 200,000 years ago and existed as small mobile units of around 40 to 80 individuals. Historical work like that of Jared Diamond and Francis Fukuyama state that humans worked a few hours a day as hunters and or foragers. Since there were no formal structures of domination, these groups essentially existed as a society of equals. Around 10,000 years ago, at the close of the last ice age, all this changed. Neolithic farmers began cultivating crops and domesticating cattle. This led to sedentism and the first settlements emerged. This in turn precipitated territorial attachments and the private ownership of property. Sporadic feuds and war ensued as a result. The production of surplus food allowed for the accumulation of wealth and influence beyond kinship groups. The need to protect property and wealth led to an invention of weapons, tools, and fortifications. Trading of surplus food necessitated the invention of vehicles. Once organized religion and politics emerged during this period as well. Farming also facilitated global increases in population. Large concentrations of people 
and surplus of goods meant the natural emergence of inequality. Then, of course, villages agglomerated into cities, which of course needed centralized systems of governance. A new cadre of bureaucrats, priests, and politicians became a permanent marker of urban history. Women who had played prominent roles earlier were sequestered into homes and imprisoned in harems. Wars became a permanent feature as captives were reduced to slaves. The slaving proletariat marked the presence of irreversible inequality, but that was only one side of the coin. The more cheerful effects of cities include the invention of writing, the advances in science, technology, and the arts, and of course, the rise of the state. Let me illustrate how this model of human development manifests today using two examples. Ian Morris, in his book, Foragers, Farmers, and Fossil Fuels, suggests that all societies have an optimal level of social inequality. Walter Schiedel, in his book, The Great Leveler, declares that inequality is inevitable. Throughout history, elites have captured more and more resources. It has usually taken catastrophes like wars, famines, plagues, etc., to bring about any kind of change. Inherent in all these theories is the belief that large settlements were inherently unequal. Recent literature, however, like James Scott's Against the Grain, posits that the evolutionary schema from nomadism to villages to towns and then to cities is false in light of, quote, accumulating archaeological evidence, end quote. The archaeological evidence that Scott recounts shows that people cultivated grain as part of a mix of food sources for millennia without settling in cities or villages. He concludes, quote, sedentism long preceded evidence of plant and animal domestication, and that both sedentism and domestication were in place at least four millennia before anything like agricultural villages appeared, end quote. Evidence suggests that in some societies, people lived in towns and villages without farming. These people settled down in or near wetlands where foraging, fishing, and hunting were enough to sustain them throughout all seasons. My reason for citing Scott is to dispute the notion that small groups are inherently egalitarian, and conversely, large populations are automatically hierarchical and authoritarian, organized in monarchies and bureaucracies. Graeber and the archaeologist David Wengro go so far as repudiating these ideas as prejudices stated as facts. They present a different model of history, also drawing from recent archaeological, anthropological, and cognitive science research. They point to the existence of rich burial sites around 25,000 years ago during the Ice Age. Uh, for example, uh, recent excavation in Sunjir, Russia, reveals the graves of a middle-aged man and two children aged 10 and 14 and 13 years old. The man's grave showed, quote, stunning signs of honor, bracelets of polished mammoth ivory, a diadem or cap of fox's teeth, and nearly 3,000 laboriously carved and polished beads, end quote. The children's graves were adorned with comparative, uh, comparable grave gifts, including, in the case of the elder, some 5,000 beads as fine as the adults, although slightly smaller, and a massive lance carved from ivory. Genetic analysis 
shows that none of these individuals were closely related. This is indicative of the lack of a ranked society of kings. The almost 13,000 beads found in these graves are estimated to have taken 10,000 hours to make. Archaeologists have taken this to mean that they involve the concerted effort of large groups of people, not the 40 and 80 as previously envisioned. Similar uh, burial sites, like the Lady of Saint Germain la Riviera in Gironde, France, and Il, and Il Principe in Linguère, Italy, all appear not to be princely burials, but individuals with striking physical anomalies like gigantism, dwarfism, and kyphosis. Alongside this evidence are architectural artifacts, such as the mammoth houses built 15,000 years ago and the stone temples of Gobulki Tepe in uh, Turkey from around 11,000 years. The Dogon Valley in France and of course, the, ne the Neolithic Stonehenge. Across these sites, there is overwhelming evidence of seasonal rhythms being a determinant of prehistoric social life. Researchers have shown evidence for annual or biannual uh, period of aggregation linked to migration of game herds, as well as cyclical fish runs and nut harvests. At less favorable times of the year, at least some of our Ice Age ancestors no doubt really did live and forage in tiny bands. But there is overwhelming evidence to show at others they congregated en masse. Remnants of this quote-unquote double morphology can be seen among the Inuit, the Cheyan, the Lakota, and indigenous societies of the northwest coast of Canada. Um, the anthropologist Marcel, uh, Marcel Moss observed that the Inuit had two social structures, one in summer, and one in winter, that in parallel, they had two systems of law and religion. Graeber and Wengro thus conclude that, quote, our remote ancestors were behaving in broadly similar ways to the Inuit, shifting back and forth between alternative social arrangements, permitting the rise of authoritarian structures during certain times of the year on the proviso that they could not last, on the understanding that no particular social order was ever fixed or immutable. And so they go on to sort of, and I'm quoting from them, it seems inherently likely that the evidence confirms that those same pioneering humans who colonized much of the planet also experimented with enormous variety of social arrangements. As Claude Levi Strauss often pointed out, early Homo sapiens were not just physically the same as modern humans, they were our intellectual peers as well. In fact, most were probably more conscious of society's potential than people generally are today, switching back and forth between different forms of organization every year. Rather than idling in some primordial innocence until the genie of inequality was somehow uncocked, our prehistoric ancestors seem to have successfully opened and shut the bottle on a regular basis, confining inequality to ritual costume dramas constructing gods and kingdoms as they did their monuments, then cheerfully disassembling them once again. Even among the early cities of the world, only a few show signs of authoritarian rule. There is an absence of artifacts reflecting class divisions and hierarchies based on wealth or status in the early cities in the Middle East 
and South Asia, including Mohenjo-daro. In Mesopotamia, with the advent of king, uh, kingship, it was self-governing councils that held power in cities. There is therefore surprisingly little evidence of the kind of inequality in cities posited by the neat evolutionary schema discussed earlier. In the city of Mohanjadaro that developed around 2600 BCE, most of its population of around 40,000 residents lived in high quality housing and lasted nearly for 700 years. There is evidence that the majority of the city's residents appear to have lived in comfortable, uh, com uh, comfortable lives, appear to have lived comfortable lives in uh, brick built houses of the lower town with a grid like with grid like street arrangements, long boulevards and remarkable infrastructure for drainage and sanitation. The latter included terracotta sewage pipes, private and public baths and bathrooms in a majority of houses, metals, gemstones and worked shell ornaments were widely available to households of the lower town. Assemblages of such items cached under the floors for security are scattered across every quarter of the city, indicating that classification on material wealth was more or less absent. Nowhere in the Indus civilization do we find any accommodation of Kshatriya type values. There is no tradition of monumental representation of pictorial narrative celebrating the deeds of charismatic leaders, lawgivers, war leaders, or other personages. Nor are there any throne rooms, royal burials, or evidence of competitive mortuary rituals. There is a lot more to explore here, but what I have presented already is enough to refute the myth that slavery, capitalism, and inequality were natural and inevitable features of human civilization earlier and now. Sadly, the bullshitization of the city perpetuates these misconceptions and even recast them in benign terms of the planetary ilk. Graeber terms this process ideological naturalization, where malleable social and physical structures are presented as immutable and permanent. The challenge to this kind of rhetoric and bullshit demonstrated throughout history and even in the present by some communities in the world is what Graeber calls imminent imagination. Rather than tinkering with inequality and trying to better our, uh, our individual prospects, can we make a more radical turn to imagine and bring about urbanism that fosters egalitarian social and political ways of being? Deeper, deeper explorations of history, as well as the practices of First Nation communities, reveal that we have been able to do this before. Do we dare to imagine different urban futures and bring them into being again? Thank you. Okay, thank you, Leon. I, I, Arjun, are you there? I'm here, sir. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Leon. So, uh, uh, thank you for such a uh, such an interesting presentation, right from from the early times. And uh, you know, I mean, there's something quite intriguing in the presentation. And uh, before I just open it for discussion, I can already see there's one question, and probably with the passage of time, we'll have a few more, and then probably Arjun will uh, also raise a few points. 
but uh, Leon, what you're trying to build up is, uh, I mean, I mean, how do you connect or how do you structure? Because you quoted Lefebvre, and then you know, uh, lots of uh, his works are sure. then uh, actually further carried, I mean, carried forward by another geographer, uh, David Harvey, and who brings in this whole concept of uh, you know democratization of the surplus. I mean, um, you know, the humongous amount of surplus that gets, uh, and he terms it that this is one of the prime. Uh, primary reasons for for the for the for the rising inequality uh, and then we have also seen structures in the united nations you know i was there in habitat 3 and then un2 habitat 2 also where uh, all those uh, propositions have been so how do you a correlate to to the latter part as i said you know the sdgs and all I mean, which talk about uh, you know re reducing inequality making more uh, Cities more equitous, but at the same time, I mean, I mean, what David Harvey is pointing out, I mean, more with the structural uh, uh, built up of the city, you know, the kind of political economy that exists, and the whole concept of democratization of the surplus, and then he builds in all those structures that are required for uh, this democratization. So, so how do you how do you how do you deal with, with, with such a phenomenon in in, in, the, in the current scenario? And the third part, if you just permit me, because I don't see any other question coming up from the Arjun, we'll see. You know, there's a lot of uh, discussion going on. Uh, you know, the, the Indian way of thinking, okay? Uh, uh, the Indian way of thinking, I mean, I, I, you, you must be aware of uh, A.K. Ramana's thesis, you know, that, I mean, so how do you understand that? I mean, uh, in, the, in, the, in the city's context, uh, I mean, what is the dynamics? I mean, I mean, you know, unlike what what he has been saying, that unlike what we witness in the West, I mean, uh, the, the the forces and that and and uh, I mean, what you also brought on the rhythm rhythmism, the whole theory of uh, uh, rhythmic behavior. So, he, I mean, he said that there's something called the Indian way of, uh, you know, like Jugaad. I mean, you know, in, in Simla we've seen how things also work through Jugaad. So, what is your take on it? Uh, as, as, as a practitioner. So I think these three and then Arjun probably later. But yeah, fascinating. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. So uh, I'm sort of going to try and answer this question and not answer it. So I uh, just, uh, Arjun, I just uh, think you should uh, address, I mean, this part first and then probably. Yeah, please, yeah, go ahead. All right, so I'm going to try and address this and not address this. All right, so um, as a researcher, you're trained to understand that there's a very uh, strong relationship between what you'd call ontology, epistemology, and methodology. All right, so the ontological sort of uh, uh, contours that Graeber is laying out is anarchist. And I think that is anarchist. And uh, so there is going to, so for instance, Graeber definitely sees, for instance, the problem with, with uh, again, so Lefebvre and, uh, and Harvey being Marxist is that uh, the, you see the, the sort of the ontology of trying to address this issue is that how do you deal with uh, the city without dealing, I mean, without having to deal with the state. They're both interconnected in the Marxist sense of the word. And uh, I think that 
there is uh, so i think that the uh, the position that which I, uh, which graver is coming from and i'm sort of also advocating is one that is different because you see among many of the the marxists too um, there's this you know i mean let me be very honest and i think some other people have asked about the role of technologies and stuff you see i in my work the way i've been looking at mode of production it's one of the most interesting concepts uh, within the marxist framework that at least i i really sort of enjoy and unfortunately it gets limited in a very in in the way of you know at least the the idea that somehow if the proletariat were able to control the mode of production then you could bring about real equitable change we've seen that that's not something that's happened with especially with communist russia and stuff that so uh, i mean so i actually do enjoy the way that graber is using the idea of modes of production because it's not about the production of a material artifact but it's more about the social production of people and therefore it has a slightly more deeper non material kind of uh, basis for it so i mean in in that sense i do think that they are not necessarily compatible views the sort of the harveyan view as than the graver in view because of their their political sort of uh, leanings so that's my first sort of uh, understanding this thing about the indian way of thinking is rather interesting you know a few weeks ago uh, there was uh, an article in the uh, it's a long in the long read of the guardian which talks about tropical cities and so well i stopped at mohanjadaro this article actually moves forward and looks at a number of you know when the colonizers went to america and when they came to asia also like ankarwat and then takal in in mexico and stuff they looked at looked at these sort of places and uh, thought that they were primitive i mean they were cities that were overgrown by and abandoned and stuff and uh, more recent studies are showing that Uh, through lidar are showing some very fascinating urban patterns like for instance at least in uh, in uh, uh, what is this called in uh, uh, ankarwat uh, at the kemar uh, empire their patterns of urbanization included agrarian fields within urban systems their agl- urban agglomerations were very different from the more present model so there's an interesting sort of uh, there is some, i mean given the fact that 50% of the world is going to live in and around the tropics we use models of urban development that are completely not suitable for um cities i mean for our sort of climatic conditions and so in even in more recent terms i'm not i rather not i mean there's a lot of baggage around looking at the indian way of things but there's a whole bunch of global examples of cities that are around the tropics like for instance uh, i you know i visited the site it's a tongue twister in mexico uh, where it's the the valley of the it's just outside mexico again they found housing they thought that those were palaces and then they realized recent evidence is showing that they were actually housing for everyone there are no palaces right and so you suddenly realize that why is it that we have this stratification of urban development that is purely 
uh, on material accumulation. So I do think, I mean, I do think there are some very interesting sort of examples that are coming through. The, uh, as you know, I mean, I started off looking at my urban work through, uh, through the Marxist lens. And I find that uh, one of the problems is that how do you deal with, there is that ingrained, an ingrained idea of an evolutionary, or oh, what could I say, schema in there, that somehow the modern state and the modern city are somehow conjoined. And so I don't see how else we can break out of it until we go to the ontological sort of basis, which uh, um, anarchism is offering, or rather the anarchist perspective is offering, in order to sort of reimagine an urban scenario that's different. Sorry, Arshan, I, I think over to you now, because... So, um, <laughs> over to me. <laughs> Because I can see, Arjun, that two, yeah, two portfolios are open, Arjun. So my connection is very weak. I'm okay. trying to just switch. Yeah. So if you can take uh, a question from yourself. No, I, I think uh, somebody must read the question. Should I do that? Sure. Ma Maima will do that. Maima will do that. Maima. Maima, please, yeah. Maima, are you there? Uh, yes. Uh, uh, unfortunately, I can't see any questions in the question no, and answer section. Two questions. What is, okay, I'll read it for you. Wait, wait, wait Maima, wait, wait. So, Leon, I think if you can read that. It's Thank you, sir. An anonymous attendee. What is the role of technology in the new non-bullshit urbanism? That's the first thing. And the second thing is, uh, do you think that because some of these forms of urbanism like Mohenjo-Daro died out, and even ways of life of the, of the I can't Inuit. Inuit, yeah, and so on are also endangered. That a non-hierarchical world is just not suitable or tenable at this juncture of time. What is the view on this? Is interesting. What is the view on this? Yeah. Sure. So, <clears throat> so let's sort of uh, the both sort of uh, questions that have no easy answers. Uh, Um, so, I mean, let, let me be the, um, the uh, let me take the second one first, because the, uh, the earlier question is a little more sort of, I uh, need some more time to think through it. Um, I don't, I don't uh, agree that a non-hierarchical world is just not suitable or tenable at this juncture of time. I think that uh, um, the uh, Occupy Wall Street movements and even are uh, sort of, an, an, and I think the kinds of protests that they have then uh, um, even sort of helped in India, like for instance, the, uh, uh, <clears throat> the Shaheen Bagh protests, et cetera, suggest that, that, uh, that uh, I think there is a, uh, the clamoring for a non sort of hierarchical way of, uh, of living. I think that, uh, <clears throat> that uh, I, I don't think it's romantic to think this through. Uh, I mean, to, to sort of write it off as being like, you know, it's just, uh, it, it's not tenable at this point. And in fact, that's like the, um, and that's, I mean, that's the core essence of Graeber's work. And if I, uh, is that 
anything that you can, you're able to make, you can unmake, or you can make differently. I think that that, uh, that is perhaps the key uh, sort of takeaway that I'd, I'd like you to go away with from today's talk, because I really don't think that there are structures that are so cast in stone that we can't remake. That, that from, so for me, I don't think that, uh, there are other reasons that I would suggest that we should look at Mohanjadaro and say even the Khmer um, examples as to why they died out because there's a strong sort of suggestion that it has to do with climate change. And <clears throat> I think that even studying them through that lens would allow us, I don't think it's because of a non-hierarchical world. In fact, um, uh, just to sort of, I'm, I'm, I may be connecting dots and I might be stretching at this point, but look at what Scott's own work has done. I mean, it's around that area, right? Where he's talking about weapons of the week. He's talking about, uh, you know, things about not being governed, etc. are all responses <laughs> to, I mean, uh, so I don't think that there is, I think there is suitable evidence of people wanting to live in a non-hierarchical world. And I think that I don't think that we should sort of look at it as being the idea of possibility that uh, that, that they can't exist. So I would I, that would be something that I would definitely sort of like you to I mean endorse at this point. Um, the role of technology. Um, so like I said, I mean, um, so the I mean, let me just put it in ways that. Um, <clears throat> So given, so let me so among the sort of philosophers of technology, et cetera, I found within my urban practice, um, at least the Marxist urban tradition that I belong to, uh, ran rough against, uh, say, um, <clears throat> what, um, uh, uh, what is uh, the guy who did One Dimensional Man? Uh, the philosopher of technology. Let me just, sorry, I, I'm, uh, I'm kind of uh, blanking on. Uh, <coughs> then blanking mass on. destruction, I mean, if I remember that correctly. Uh, Herbert Marcuse, sorry. So let me just get to that. So I found that a lot of what uh, the Marxist sort of writers were uh, advocating, as well as uh, <clears throat> was sort of running into what I believed Herbert Marcuse was talking about, which was, <clears throat> according to Herbert Marcuse, he says that in, in One Dimensional Man, he says that technology kind of contours your entire existence. So the idea that you could have a proletariat that would uh, would sort of bring about any kind of change was was impossible given the one dimensionality of society today, which was circumscribed by technology. <clears throat> now, um, so I, it, I, I had hit an impasse. And like I said, uh, it's been a couple of years of wandering through uh, sort of where <clears throat> um, through my sort of and like I call myself a lapsed urbanist for a while, I actually do see that technology should be looked at, like I said, in modes of production. And, you know, and, and in that sense, through a, a sort of a larger vision. And uh, 
I don't see it as being instrumental in the way that your question is framed. That is, what is the role of technology? I actually sort of see it in a much uh, sort of broader, uh, <clears throat> broader sense of the word, um, in the sense that uh, it actually can help create uh, sort of, uh, you know, it, it can it can actually uh, help create a. Um, um, it's it. Uh, let, let me just put it this way. Okay, sorry about this, but uh, it is a difficult question, and therefore I'm kind of also thinking on my feet. Um, the point here is that again, if I were to go back to say uh, Heidegger, who talks in the question regarding technology, he says there is no essence for technology. That actually, it, what ha what it does to human beings. So similarly, I don't think I can. Uh, what I would say is that you can't uh, pull out technology as just sort of some kind of cause effect, uh, 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 what could I say, a spectrum or a linear spectrum. And I do think that given the kind of society, given the kind of political, uh, what could I say, arrangements that we have, the techno that technology would actually help or, uh, Oh, what could I say? Well, Leon, in, in, in a Marxist terminology, I would say instead of cause and effect one, it has to be seen in a dialectical sense. Yeah, you know, so, yeah, technology must be seen in a dialectical sense, more to do with, you know, not with cause and effect, as you, you said. Yeah, I'm mean, just joking. Yeah. Sure. No, 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 thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for helping me out there. <laughs> All right. I see we have one, so more one question. question I had. Sure. So how do you see uh, in this 21st century, China is urbanizing so fast and uh, we are somehow following them. How do you see this uh, progress happening in this century? Because Chinese also follow more of socialist and coming from Russia and the new wave of urbanization coming in Asia. How do you see this phenomenon? I think there's enough sort of writing that suggests that the Chinese model is not necessarily kind of socialist in that sense, right? It's it's a kind of, it's a managed capitalism. But I mean, from an architectural standpoint, again, it's the same problems, right? Um, you have failed architects of Europe, etc., just building their designs in China. So, um, I mean, thank God that no, we haven't gotten there, is what I would just say at the moment. Um, but again, I think it's important. I mean, uh, <clears throat> it's sort of, uh, um, I, 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 the problem is there's a hegemonic sort of understanding of the urban, that it's this sort of, uh, you know, that there is somehow this formulaic application of density of some material, and you know of a it's it's you'll see it in the master plans too that it's it's almost it's it's formulaic right there are uh, there are some models of urban growth and and actually this paper also comes is an outpouring from another paper that i did which was about the sort of eugenic beginnings of regional planning and i examine um, sort of Patrick Geddes, because Patrick Geddes' understanding of the city also is from this evolutionary schema. That's part of how I got to where I am today, was a critique of Patrick Geddes. But that regional planning model is still very much the model that we are following. 
I mean, just look at, I mean, let's not go to China. Let's look at India also. Look at Chandigarh. Chandigarh was designed as a city. Today, it's become a region with Mohalli uh, attached to it. Bangalore is also a regional plan. So there's this, uh, and somehow, and the arg argument being, it comes from that idea of a city moving into a region, comes from Geddes's evolutionary theory. I mean, it comes from the book, Cities and Evolution, right? So, and there's this idea of, uh, you know, technological progress very much written, to, uh, written into it. So if you don't adapt the latest metro technology or the bullet train, for example, your Luddite or your primitive, there's so much of our models of urbanization actually follow through this sort of, this evolutionary schema. So, I mean, the point of, uh, so I think that um, the models that you're seeing in China and the models that you're seeing in India are very much the same. It's the same sort of time that sort of formulaic application of urbanism that you're seeing. So I don't necessarily see a distinction. It's just that I think in, in China, I mean, I don't know too much about China, but I, from what I hear, it's on steroids compared to India. And uh, yes, there are certain ways that will facilitate it. And uh, there's a lot of economic progress that would also facilitate it. But I don't necessarily see difference in quality in that, I mean, in, in that sense, they're, because they're the same models. So there are two more interesting questions which have come. Anshula, would you quickly read that? So one is from Dr. Geetha Devi, who is asking about your take on uh, how economic inequality doesn't stand alone and it also incorporates other forms of inequality, especially gender equality. And we have a question from Dr. Prakash, who is asking, um, you have already talked about the non-inevitability of the size of population and hierarchical organization of state institutions, but can we still think in the current Indian scenario that the state has become too big and too centralized along with the institutions. Think of undoing the hierarchical nature of city life and unculture. And if yes, where to start and your idea of the plan of action that can be advocated. And there is one more question from an anonymous attendee uh, who is asking, um, if the present day urbanism is driven by a statistical model of material accumulation, where prejudice is put forward as societal facts resulting in inequality, what do you take uh, going ahead in making a more just um, All right, so I'll take Dr. Gita's question first because I did address it. Uh, there is a, I mean, so I, I think there was a point where I talked about uh, the move from villages into, uh, into towns, you actually start seeing um, women are then sort of somehow uh, put behind, uh, you know, are either taken to harems or are sort of, are, uh, you know, like in India in the Parda system, they sort of, uh, when they were actual sort of contributors were actually taken uh, and, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, and, and sort of, uh, they played a diminishing role in this, this evolutionary model that we, we tend to uh, follow. But you're right. I mean, the point here is that, uh, you know, and, and it's a slightly more complex argument that Graeber makes, but I'll try and sort of uh, uh, make it a little more, uh, uh, you know, try and simplify it. 
Um, he talks about the idea of value and values. All right, so the idea of value being the economic value being the dominant sort of thing. And when he talks about, um, if you look at the, that separation of making of products and making of people, so there is the more, uh, so the factories are the producers and the houses are the consumers. That's pre precisely how the economic model of the city works. And of course, in between you have the schools and art galleries and all of that, that kind of, uh, which kind of uh, are, uh, are along the spectrum between the consumption and production. Or uh, if you flip that around, um, you also, the house is where you produce the workforce that then goes on to work in the factories, right? And um, so the idea of values, and that's why you sort of suddenly see the home as becoming this place of values, and therefore there is no monetary um, sort of, there is like, for instance, all work that's done in the house is somehow doesn't qualify as being monetary that of, or doesn't have economic value, right? Women who end up being quote unquote homemakers and stuff. So I do think that there is a certain, uh, I, uh, this, this model of, uh, of, of evolution that we, we seem to have inherently possessed needs to be broken. And I do think that uh, that um, uh, that part of this would be in kind of, I, I do think that capitalism likes to sort of have this, the uh, works in this particular manner, and it would be important to sort of break this, uh, this, uh, this condition. And I do think that gender inequality is a major issue here. Um, now, you know, I mean, it's, uh, so if I go to go back to Dr. Prakash's question, I am in no way saying that, uh, you know, uh, so the current Indian scenario about the state being too big, I have no problem. Now, there is nothing inherent in a city that says that a city needs to have an authoritarian sort of system governing it. In fact, uh, to go back to uh, Dr. Gita's question, actually, you will see some of the most atrocious authoritarian sort of systems happening at the family level. Not necessarily. So the idea that somehow the larger you get, that you have to have the centralized uh, system, I think is something that we've just, with it's, or it's, it's commonsensical is what we think, but actually it's not. I don't think there's any reason to believe that, uh, that that's somehow the way things need to be. So uh, just like I talked about the double, the, uh, so let me just, let me explain this to you in a little bit. All right, so uh, if you indulge me. So uh, newer, latest studies on, on, on nomadic societies have shown that even if the societies are between 40 to 80 people large, they find that uh, less than a 10th of the actual members of the tribe are actually genetically related. They actually find that these tribes take on uh, members who are 
from far-flung regions. And um, some of them, and uh, studies have shown that some of them don't even speak the same first language in these tribes. So the idea that, again, that, so, that we can exist in one particular way is problematic. That actually we can, uh, that our ancient ancestors were actually like city dwellers. They operated in small units and large units. So, and in egalitarian manners. So my point here is that I don't think that necessarily living in a large city and somehow the size of the city has to do with the political structure. I think that that is something that we need to disabuse ourselves of. And um, and yeah, so uh, so, more, so yeah, so there is so much of these new uh, studies that are, are sort of coming up that show um, that there is no actual relationship between the fact that somehow smaller structures are equitable and larger structures are somehow authoritarian. Uh, and of course, I don't think I have the answers to how to make the just city. When questions like this arise, I don't like to put myself in the situation of having to, I don't think it's fair to put yourself in the situation of trying to prescribe things. What I would do is look around because I'm sure there are thousands of organizations around the world that are working towards just this very cause. And I think it's important that we actually speak to them and understand how they are trying to actually make a just sort of city. And so I wouldn't want to, uh, I, I honestly, and it's not like I'm ducking the question, but that's not, uh, <laughs> I still am then a lapsed urbanist because I hate being yeah, prescriptive yeah. about what you should do. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so uh, I think, thank you, Hyun. And uh, Arjun, you didn't speak much this time, Arjun. Is Sir, <laughs> power cut is here. <laughs> Sir, you're concluding remarks. No, I am really happy. At least we could uh, catch hold of Leon and... Uh, yeah, because I think we, uh, uh, I mean, it's interesting because the kind of perspective that Leon brought in, uh, you know, we ought to know, uh, and I think, I mean, the, the most important part, I mean, uh, that Leon has uh, said, I mean, I mean, uh, which, which is, which to me is the most important, that he said, look, look, I'm not judgmental. I mean, there are many, many, many other organizations who are also, uh, you know, trying to understand more to do with comprehension. I think that was, uh, that, that's really, that speaks about about uh, uh, about what what he I mean I, I mean you know we being students of of of, of, of the processes uh, that are unfolding and trying to connect it from the past to the present so thank you so much Leon and uh, we wish to uh, carry it forward and uh, yeah I I find the the, the, the number of participants also quite good enough and probably this has also been watched on the Facebook and uh, other platforms YouTube. And uh, later it will be there on the YouTube, so other students and researchers can also really come to that. Uh, so I think, uh, uh, yeah, uh, Arjun, if you want to add anything else, uh, I I don't have to add. I mean, because bullshit is something like you know bullshit. I mean, what else do you say? Yeah, but uh, yeah, interesting, quite interesting. I mean, and that this was one of the most interesting talks we've had. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Anshula, over to you. Thank you so much. And I'd just like to formally propose a vote of thanks. 
So on behalf of the Center for Habitat, Urban and Traditional Studies at MG, I would like to thank all of you for participating in this discussion on PS urbanism today. I'd like to thank our speaker, Dr. Leon Morenas, for taking out the time to be with us and for his insights. And for moderator, Mr. Tiki Morenas, for Thank you to everyone uh, who joined in for the attendees and for your questions. To everyone who watched here on Zoom or on Facebook Live or this watching later on YouTube or listening on our podcast. Thank you. And uh, we hope to see you in our future episodes of this Thank you, everyone. Thank you. That's it.